Welcome to the Concordia Publishing House podcast, where we consider everything in the light of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm your host, Elizabeth Pittman. When it comes to caring for God's people, pastors are called to be leaders. In his new book, Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People, Reverend Dr. Jameson Hardy explains that pastoral care and pastoral leadership are not separate functions, but are in fact one and the same thing. Before we start our conversation with Dr. Hardy, I'd like to thank our friends at the LCMS Foundation for their support of the CPH podcast. How can your congregation turn significant financial gifts into a long-term funding source that blesses your church for generations to come? The LCMS Foundation was created to do just that. They provide professional investment services to LCMS churches, schools, and RSOs. They've helped hundreds of congregations create, manage, and grow endowments using investments tailored to each congregation's unique goals and financial needs. And now they'd like to help yours. Learn more at lcmsfoundation.org slash podcast. Dr. Hardy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you. How does it feel now that you've had this, you've been working through the process of writing this book, and now here we are just about at release day? Yeah, it's exciting. I have spent many years prior to doing this uh, kind of dreaming about this book. It's uh, something that's been on my plate for a number of years since the completion of my doctorate in 2012. And um, it, it just is a, a joy to be able to be at this place and, and to see it um, in, in actual print. In the book, you point out that, quote, a vast majority of what I would do as a pastor was tied up in being a pastoral leader. Unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, so the premise of the book is pastoral leadership is pastoral care. And and that's that's what is meant in that phrase. I wasn't understanding when I was a young pastor coming out uh, of the seminary as a traditional student that the very things I was doing as a pastor or actually also being a leader. And that only occurred to me after a, a number of years in the ministry with input from uh, other lay people that I was serving with. Uh, and it just is one of those things. I think we walk out of the seminary and we're given a congregation and we start doing the job of the pastor and we kind of mistake the fact that the very acts of pastoral care are pastoral leadership moments. And and that is the premise really of the entire book, but that's really what I was getting at with that sentence. So you've been serving as a district president in the, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. From your vantage point as district president, what are the biggest opportunities and challenges facing our pastors these days? It's a great question because I think we are entering into a time period in the cyclical nature of the church where we are under pressure, uh, where the world is overly attacking the church, where everything that God has presented in a clear fashion is being questioned. The very things like the nature of sexuality, male and femaleness is at question and at stake. And so pastoral leadership in today's um, congregational life is, is really challenging. And I think as a district president, what I have seen versus being a parish pastor alone, I still have a congregation and I still serve that way, but it's not my main focus. My main focus is being a district president. And so as a district president, I see my guys throughout the district in 21 different states and the, in the United States and in Ontario province of Canada as 
struggling with how to articulate the faithful message of Christ in a, in a way that is loving to the neighbor. And, and what I mean by that is the, the very nature of the word of God and his commands is going to be offensive to the world. The Bible itself tells us that. And so I see my, my, my pastors struggling with, with being called hateful when they defend the sanctity of marriage, uh, being called bigoted when we deny DEI educational principles because of the foundational principles of the scriptures that we are all created in God's image. And so that struggle is real. And, and as a district president, from a pastoral leadership perspective, I've learned very quickly that some of my guys are, are quickly adapting and finding their way in that space. And some are struggling very difficultly. They're struggling in a difficult way because ultimately they're trying to adhere to the word of God and it's coming out in a way that's not as loving or caring as it should be. And I don't necessarily think that they're trying to be mean or, or, or you know, dismissive. I think they're struggling to communicate it. And, and that's just the nature of our, of our world. I was talking to a lay person yesterday and she told me that, you know, she feels that the church is in, in the biblical standard of the pagan age where the world is becoming pagan and God is, is, is becoming attacked at every turn. And I, I, I agreed with her, but that just makes the job of the pastor that much more difficult. What advice do you have to those pastors who are struggling with how to communicate in that loving, um, almost winsome way, but while still holding firm to what we believe. Yeah, and it's a, it's a tightrope. It's it's a balancing act that that you walk every day. Uh, tonight at six thirty, um, we're going to be having a memorial service for this young uh, child in our congregation that had a tragic uh, death, and you know we're going to walk a very tightrope with just the circumstances of it, and we're not going to shy away from it. We're not going to ignore it, but you know, I think for the church and for the pastors of the church, they cannot be afraid of it. And, and I think that's that's the dividing line. Um, guys who are afraid of meeting the challenge and trusting that God will do his work through it versus the guys that are not afraid and carry on the same work, trusting that God will work through it. The other thing I would say is, uh, you know, I came out of the seminary in 2000, so 23 years ago. I'm starting my 24th year, and and the promises were clear. You graduate, you get a congregation with a regular salary, with full health benefits, with a retirement account, and and God's people. That promise is not today, and 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 it wasn't promised that it would be easy when I came out, but there was no thought that my immediate entrance into the church would be met with cultural, um, you know pushback and, and cultural attack. And so the parish life is its own animal. And then you add this cultural issue on top of it. So my advice to guys is do not be afraid. Trust in the promises of God. Hold God accountable to his promise that he will not leave or forsake, meaning trust that it is true and believe that when that hour arrives, when you need that strength and that support from God, he will be there. You talk about in the introduction and that one thing that's so important for pastors is time management. Yeah. And I know this is a struggle being a pastor's kid. I've seen it and, and knowing a lot of pastors and a lot of church workers um, and beyond just the called pastors, called church workers. We have our teachers, other people who work throughout the church. Time management is hard. Right. 
why why is it so challenging for our pastors and church workers in particular? Well, and this is this again really gets to the heart of some of the issues within the church. And I think today some of the reasons it's very difficult is we've seen this pendulum swing. Um, my pastor, his his family, uh, I don't want to say suffered, but it, it, they did. They suffered because he gave full and complete attention to the church. In fact, at his funeral. Yeah, one of his sons told my father that everything you loved about my dad, his his dad, the pastor, my family paid for, meaning that he was attentive, he was present, he was you know with our families in times of need, and his son just expressed that all of that his family paid for, and I think the pendulum has swung to the other side. I see young men come out of the seminary today having multiple kids who push the church aside in order to be with their family. And and I think that's the struggle. Church balance is hard for any good pastor. I've been blessed with a, a wife and kids who understand that sacrifice. I mean, I remember the day when my oldest son was two years old, I was rocking him to bed and the phone rang, so-and-so was dying. I handed him to my wife, got dressed and I went to the hospital. Um, that's what I mean when I gave God family church in the book. There are moments when church becomes more prioritized than family. There are moments when family comes more prioritized than church, but never does God supplant the, the first place. And, and I think that the, the time management struggle are guys that either put too much time into the church and not enough in the family and or the guys that put too much time in the family and not enough in the church. And again, I think the good pastor, the good pastoral leader understands that there are seasons in the church where the demand on the church is heavier than on the family. And then there are seasons where the demand on the family are heavier than on the church. And it's the balance of living that and, and carrying it out. I, I mean, me personally, I don't have a scheduled day off, like Mondays are my day off. I take my time when I can and as it's needed. I don't recommend that for everybody. It's worked for me for 24 years. I can take an afternoon here, a morning there, a whole day here, as opposed to one of my brothers who's a good friend of mine, Every Monday, come hell or high water, he is not answering his phone. He's taking it off, you know. And I, I, I respect that, but I also think that you know, good, high-quality pastoral leaders understand that there are moments in time when the family is not priority in order to be a high-quality pastoral leader. And you're right; it definitely is a balance, um, and being aware of your context, I'm sure, helps the pastor to identify the right balance at the time. What makes for a healthy relationship between a pastor and his congregation and also between a pastor and his staff? Well, I mean, again, I think I go back to uh, presence. I, I, you know, being a district president has taught me one thing. Visitation for the district president is important. Well, it's also for the parish pastor. I mean, I, I made my living as a parish pastor prior to becoming a district president on being a a, a pastor who visited his people. I was in the homes of my people. I, you know, I, I, I was at meal times with my people. I, I knew where they lived, not only geographically from an address perspective, but I knew where they lived from a, uh, um, a living standard perspective and, and a rhythm perspective. And, and I knew how their struggles family-wise were with mom or dad working. And, and so presence is number one, that, that would be number one. Um, my senior pastor who I serve with, Chris Tome, is doing his dissertation on, on communication as a pastoral leader. And, and I think that's another, you ask about staff. 
I think clear communication is a thing that we take for granted in the sense of we think that we're being clear in our communication, but we're really not. I think regularity and clarity, those two words, they go together to make effective pastoral leaders. And then the third thing that I would say, in, especially in terms of staff, is confidence in decision making. Uh, the, the, the thing I've learned the most in, in 24 years as a pastor is people will follow the pastor into almost any situation if he's leading with confidence and and is leading with the the sense that he knows what he's doing. Now, that doesn't mean there's not moments where you kind of just you take a deep breath and in faith you move forward with confidence. Um, we're not always right, but I think the difference between effective pastoral leadership and, and not effective pastoral leadership is the confidence of the leader himself. And I think over my time, I can just tell you, I walk into a congregation where the pastor is very timid and reserved, and I go into another congregation where the pastor is confident and moves forward. There's a very clear picture of laity whose desire and willingness is to follow that person. You also talk about, in addition to the confidence, you talk about motivation and purpose. Um, tell us a little bit about the motivation and what advice you might have for a pastor who is struggling to um, maintain that motivation. You know, when I first came into the ministry, one of the things I used to get told all the time is, you know, I, I have this great passion for serving the church and, and that'll go away over time. I've been told by the older pastors. And I just and I feel the way today, as I did then 24 years later, uh, I have a little bit of frustration and anger at those older guys that said that to me, because the older I get in the ministry, the more I realize I'm imprinting on the younger generation. And I pray God every day that that passion, that joy, and that excitement never leaves me. From, from my 24-year-old self to my hopefully 84-year-old self in the church, I pray God that that excitement of proclaiming the gospel, loving my neighbor, caring for the needs of those who have uh, difficulties never leaves me. And, and I think, you know, that's something I tell my guys, I, I, I joyfully, I put this in the book as well, I, I joyfully ask young seminarians and, and new pastors I get into the district, what are you looking forward to doing and being when it comes to being a pastor? And they resound the same things, you know, preaching, teaching, and, and giving the Lord's Supper, which are all great things in the centerpiece of ministry. But, you know, the drudgery of ministry is also things you should look forward to. Uh, just today, my senior pastor texted me and said, um, to the family that we are dealing with right now, uh, who's having a tragedy, he's going over there to spend another couple hours with them. You know, that's an interruption to the day. It kind of messes up the entire day, but it's part of the joyful grind of serving God in the church. And I think that's it. It's, it's really about perspective and attitude. Too often guys get this kind of preconceived notion that I'm going to I'm going to work for 30 hours a week and the rest of the time I'm just going to sit in my office and prepare to preach. Well, guess what? There are many weeks in my life, even as a district president, where things happen and I only have about an hour to prepare for preaching, um, it, which I don't like. I, don't, I mean, it's not, but I only have an hour this week as opposed to five hours. Uh, and, and yet I trust that God will give me that concentrated hour to prepare and study and be ready for that sermon on Sunday. But guess what? Today has today's commands and demands. And I think that's for a young pastor that's very difficult. It's very difficult for them to grasp the fact that there's an ebb and flow to the life of a pastor. And when, when, the, when the waters are rising on, on all these problems happening, it's the understanding that this is temporary. It's not my life forever. It's just very hectic right now. A perfect example is Holy Week. My first Holy Week was kind of 
eye-opening, right? I mean, it was like, it's just overwhelming when you think about it and then you live through it and go, it wasn't that bad. I mean, at least it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I mean, I remember my first Easter Sunday morning. I had, I, I'm not a big napper, but I remember the first Easter Sunday morning. I came home after church. I sat down and I fell asleep. I was just physically exhausted. But then I woke up. Uh, I mean, I, I got up for the week, uh, the following week and went into the office and it started over, but it slowed down, you know. And I think that's part of the, the rhythm of a pastor's life, too. You know, we're entering this summer period where theoretically for the pastor, things should slow down. But for me, as a district president, we have LWML National Convention this summer. We have the Synodical Convention. I'm a floor committee vice chair. You know, I, I just it's not going to be slow and it's going to be over in a heartbeat. That's just the way my summer is going to be this year. And I'm OK with it because, again, it's just it's an ebb and flow of, of life. So you mentioned the know how it's hard for the new pastors to understand the ebb and flow we just had a new new group of seminary graduates who've received their first calls and are probably even throughout this month and next being ordained in their first calls what other advice would you have for them about things that they will encounter but may not have thought about while they were at seminary yeah that that, that's another one of those questions that over time as a veteran pastor you kind of start to understand your preconceived notions aren't reality. Uh, and I'll give you an exact, exact example. I actually have three ordinations in the next four weeks I'll be doing. Um, and two of them are back to back Saturday and Sunday of next week, actually, uh, July one and two. And I have three other installations, which again is, is participating in my summer blowing by. But I, 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 I tell the guys very clearly this. One of the things that pastors must grasp is laity will get angry with God and take it out on you. And it's not personal to you. But we get so defensive sometimes when laity are mad or upset about a position in the church or about a theological ramification or a command of God and, and the pastor's in the office with them and the laity is just biting. And our first reaction, and I'm a wrestler, my first reaction is defense and, and fight back. Um, I'm, I'm certainly the, the fight guy, not the flight guy. But I've had to learn over time that sometimes you don't need to fight. You just need to let people vent and you need to remind them of the word of God and remind them that our, our task, both as pastor and in partnership in the gospel, is to uphold God's word faithfully. And sometimes you just have to take that deep breath and accept the fact that it's not about you. And that's very difficult in the pastoral office because we are in the center of everything with everybody at all times. So young pastors, I think, get the false impression that they have to defend everything. I'll give you an example of my early ministry. When I first got to the parish, um, my first cycle of budgeting, the president came into my office and said, you will leave the meeting tonight when we talk about the pastor. And I said, I will not. I will not simply voluntarily get up, walk out of the room, and let you violate the Eighth Commandment. Now, remember, 24 years old, and he got in my face. I mean, he was right here, and I would not back down. And I let him know in no uncertain terms, in a loving way, I'm not leaving. So we get to the meeting, and this kind of also tells you, this man, by the way, is still alive. He's in his 90s. He was such an impactful leader example for me because we got to the meeting, and he said, our tradition is that the pastor would get up when we discuss this, but we're changing tradition now. Pastor Hardy's going to stay. 
and he launched into the and and today if you ask me today to get up and leave a meeting and let i get up and walk out i'm confident in myself today i don't care what they say good or bad meaning you know so that's a perfect example where you know it set the tone for my ministry in a good way by the way but it could have gone the other way it could have gone I'm a district president now, and I've seen guys pull this stunt that I pulled, and it go completely different. You know what I mean? The ramifications totally didn't end up the way mine ended up. Mine ended up in a wonderful, positive uh, relationship with my lay people, and I've seen it go the other way. And so, you know, those are just things you kind of learn over time. And I got to be honest with you, in terms of my life, I look back on these pastoral moments and say, if it weren't for the grace of God, one little flip of a coin and I would have been in the problem situations that some of these other guys are in today, which gives me great compassion when I'm dealing with them as a district president leader, you know. What would you say to a congregation who is receiving a new pastor and not necessarily a new a new sure. graduate on his first call, but having a new pastor come into their congregation? Yeah, I actually think the, the advice is the same on both sides of the coin, whether it's a seminarian or a new call. Be patient and love your pastor. He's going to make mistakes. And the way through it is for you to be loving and patient and tolerant of his mistakes uh, and, and tolerate it enough to keep the ministry moving. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't have to be upset. That doesn't mean you don't have to be angry at things he might say or do. But love him enough like you would in a marriage relationship to look over it and move forward. And I, I think that's the best advice you can give any congregation, whether it's a seminarian or a a seasoned pastor. But I also think there are congregations that their culture is that which provides for a young or new or seminarian type candidate to come in and thrive. And the reverse is true. Some congregation cultures just are not healthy for young or, or inexperienced pastors. And and I think, you know, the, the Council of Presidents has picked up on this and we've instituted kind of a three-year rule. We don't allow pastors to be used on call list if they've not been at a parish for three years, because what it creates with these congregations is this grind. They get a new pastor, they grind them through this grinder for a couple of years, then the guy leaves. And that cycle in some churches has gone on for 30 years. They've burned through 10 or 12 pastors. And I think the way to stop that is to remind God's people and the pastors that the ministry is, is a joint ministry of, of God's people and God's servants. And if it wasn't for COVID, I'd still be in my parish in Pittsburgh. Um, so, I mean, I was there 20 years and I, I loved, you know, 99% of my time there in terms of, you know, there's occasionally a bad thing or two that happens in life. But I never, while I always, uh, the human side of me always kind of looked at the grass being greener on the other side, I never thought about wanting to depart because if, if I departed, everything would go away because I had people who cared about me and even in the difficult moments, that was enough. And I think that's the key, that you've got to have that relationship with God's people. That is a interchange between God's people and the servants of Christ. Why is it important for a pastor to care about the finances of the congregation? You know, this, this is not the stuff that I, I'm sure seminarians are eager to jump into when they're going through seminary. Um, and it, it's, can be the, it can be hard work dealing with the finances and that type of administration. But why is it so important that it be a focus of the pastor? Yeah, let me just say this. One of the first chapters I wrote was chapter nine of my book, which is on finance. 
that is my expertise. That is my background. That is my doctoral and masteral work. Um, and, and I just, I can tell you the greatest efficiency in the church with pastoral leaders is a clarity and understanding of finances. And I mean that not just from, I mean, you talk stewardship and I think stewardship and finances are actually one in the same, meaning um, no money, no mission. And so it, you can't carry out the mission without the people and the, and the dollars to do it. I tell the, the introduction in the book that my first budget cycle was the old Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Standard Protocol way of budgeting. What did we spend last year? What do we think we're going to spend this year? Add or subtract a couple dollars from each line item. That's not budgeting. Uh, true budgeting takes into account many factors, not the least of which are what we call today market conditions. And I'll give you an example of that. About three, no, maybe about five years ago, there was this tremendous push in energy cost. And, and then again, it happened at President Biden's election where you see this tremendous run-up on, on uh, gas, specifically in oil. And, and that translated also um, over the last two to three years an increased cost on natural gas and propane. And, and so when you're looking at your budget and you see two years ago, we spent $1,200 on gas. Last year, we spent $1,300 on gas. Oh, let's just add another $100. You're not taking into consideration that the predictions of the inflation are going to be somewhere up 30 to 40%. And so, you know, what I did with my people as the pastor is I had great lay people, but I also did my homework. So when we came to the budget planning meetings, I would be the one that would tell the congregation, we need to increase our energy spending 30 to 35% based on this projection, this projection, and this projection, as opposed to the old Missouri way, let's just add a couple bucks to last year's number. And, and that's, that's one example. The second example is everything financial in the congregation is a stewardship issue, which I believe is a spiritual issue. And I think if pastors are not attuned to that reality, they're going to miss the boat on teaching what, what lifestyle stewardship is. And the only way they can contribute to that is if they have a better picture of, of what finances are. It's one of the reasons, and I want to thank Wayne uh, Kramer here for helping me on this. I had put all this listing of these words uh, in there, and through the editorial process, he was outstanding in helping me revise some of those and making them much more churchly in nature. They were, when I first put them in there, they were much more just business terminologies. But he did a phenomenal job at helping me work through, um, you know, me rewriting those to be much more churchly in explanations. And it was it was brilliant on, on his part to assist me with that, because the information I had was the right information. But but he, he challenged me to write those again in a way that had more of an easy understanding to apply them to church. And I think for the guys who have little to no financial understanding, I think chapter nine is going to be a really beneficial chapter for them. And for lay people who might not have understanding of finance, they should take tremendous educational time from that. Because if you're a lay leader and you don't understand finances, chapter nine will give you all you need to understand how to be a good financial steward. Well, you mentioned the laity. And while the title of the book is Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People, there's a lot in the book that the lay people will be able to learn from, as you mentioned, chapter nine. Um, tell us a little bit about why lay people should be interested in taking a look and reading this book carefully. Yeah, well, I would say there's three things. And first, I, I want to start with what I consider to be probably the more comical one, but the, the more applicable one. And that is a lay person's ability to hold his pastor accountable. Um, 
I think a, a lay person who reads this book not only would get their own edification from biblical standards of leadership and the like, but they also will know how to interact with their pastor from a pastor's perspective on great lay examples of lay leadership in my life, which are throughout the book. In fact, some of my members from my congregation in Pittsburgh, I've told them that when they, when they get the book, that, um, that they need to read it and I want them to tell me where they find themselves in the book. And, and that is something that uh, I've challenged a number of people who are actually in the book, not by name, but they'll know when they read the stories who they are. And, and that's kind of a little bit of a standing uh, a competition out there with about 12 or 14 people. I'm trying to find out if they can see where they're at. But, but I think with the lay folks, the, the thing that really I emphasize in this, in this book, I hope over and over again, is that some of the greatest examples of leadership that I've ever been given were given by lay people who never said they were trying to teach me lay leadership. In fact, uh, I, I have a thanks in the back of the book for Mr. Keith Ferndack, who's the CEO of Concordia Lutheran Ministries in Cabot, Pennsylvania, a senior living center with uh, services from birth to death. And, and I've been with him for 20 plus years. And I, I'm just telling he's on the Synod's Board of Directors, uh, just completing 13 years on that post. And nobody has been more impactful in my leadership teaching than him. And he's never sat down and, and lectured me on anything. I've just watched. And then I've tried to copy. And now I've tried to compete in that way, meaning I employ those very skills that he's taught me uh, with him and, and around him. And, and it's very visible that a lay person not only can get tremendous biblical understandings of what uh, Christological leadership is in the church, but how to deal with their pastors from a pastor's perspective. What are a few of the examples of biblical leadership that we see from some, several of the figures in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, chapter one, when I wrote chapter one, it was really a labor of love because I wanted to pick 15 or 20 biblical characters that had a specific leadership flaw. We just start with Adam. You know, Adam, the, the biblical text in Genesis says, Adam was with her in the garden. That's the Genesis text, uh, English translation. When the serpent approached Eve. And what that means is Adam was right next to his wife when she was being asked the questions, did God really say to you? And Eve had to answer the questions with the answer, no, because God spoke those things to Adam. And the command to not eat of the tree was given to Adam. And, and so the point is, Adam stood there with a fearful heart in leadership and did not exercise his leadership. He did not exercise his authority and responsibility for the family. And you know the rest of the story, the world has suffered for it. And, and so I go through characters like that. Uh, David is another great example. You know, David being the king who took Bathsheba's husband, sent him out to the front lines, knowing that he'd be killed so that, that David could take unto himself Bathsheba as his wife. And here comes the prophet Nathan to tell the story about the rich man who took the poor man's goat or the sheep. And, and next thing you know, David says that man should be killed. And what did Nathan say? You are that man. You know, so these examples of, of the leaders in the, in the Bible who had character flaws, God still used for marvelous and wonderful things. And so the first chapter I start out with um, laying the foundation of the fact that we all have leadership flaws in our character. And at the end of each chapter, um, you know, we have study note questions and kind of Bible study questions to generate group discussions. 
And I ask, you know, those who read this, you know, talk, think about, list some of the character flaws you have in leadership, and then reflect on how God used those biblical leaders still in marvelous and wonderful ways, even amidst their leadership flaws. And so that's where I think lay people can really get a tremendous amount out of this, because then it will also give them a great deal of patience when their pastor is exhibiting those characteristics that the great biblical examples uh, of the of the bible uh, show us that god still used david to do marvelous things he used noah in in the in the flood story here's another one who god said go build an ark i'm going to flood the earth noah goes out and gets drunk and lays naked and his sons put him you know back dad come on dad and yet god used noah to repopulate the earth his three sons and their three wives and so you know, I think every biblical example in chapter one really gives us a, a eye-opening understanding for ourselves as well as for our pastors. And so this is why, for me, uh, the book is really for everyone in the church. And, and frankly, I hope and pray that uh, everybody uh, takes the chance to at least take a look at it, because every chapter has a lot of stories in it in my life as a district president or a parish pastor that I think everybody can relate to at some point in their life. And, and making that connection to be a good pastoral leader. But I want to also say, and that might be book two, uh, great lay leadership qualities, you know, um, and how lay people can be great leaders in the church uh, in partnership with the pastor. Uh, I tell the story in the book also of the first president. By the way, this, the same man who told me I had to leave the meeting, he came into my office the week before I was installed. So we, we bought our house December 1st. I was ordained December 10th and then installed December 17th. And on December 4th, I was unpacking books and the man walked into my office, Art Mikolaitz, his name. And Art gave me a list. He was an engineer. This Everything he did was by way of a list, you know. Um, you will call all of these people and just tell them you're their new pastor. Okay. And it was the greatest thing I could have ever done. I was looking back on it. I was very offended that he had the gall to come in and tell me, the pastor, what to do. But looking back on it, and I've told Art this, by the way, every new seminarian, I tell them they should call their people before they're installed and get a list from the president or the head elder of influential and important members in the congregation. And before you're even installed, call those people up and say, hey, I'm Pastor Hardy. I'm your new pastor. I'm getting forward to looking to meet you and get to know you. It was the greatest thing I could have ever been given um, by a lay person in leadership, and I had no clue even what was going on. Well, it's so important for, from the lay side for the pastor to care enough to want to make that call and to build that personal relationship because that helps, as you said earlier, the pre being present um, and being in community and relationship with your people. It's so important. As we wrap up, what advice do you have or what piece of advice do you think our pastors at any stage really, really need to hear right now as they go about their ministry? Yeah, I'm not so sure I did a good enough job covering this in the book as I'd like to, uh, again, probably leaving room for even more discussion in the future. But your work is not finished nor ended. And, and that might sound somewhat trite and somewhat simplified, but I think the longer we serve, men in the office like myself who, who serve for years and years and years, there, there are moments in the ministry where you, you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, is it all worth it? Um, am I pouring all these hours uh, away from my family or am I pouring all these hours into my church and my people? And is it worth it? 
And, and I won't go into the, the long version, but the short version, recently I had a, a situation of a young gal who I had uh, many years ago who I confirmed who, let's just put it this way, is struggling in life mightily. I won't get into the context of what she's struggling about, but she recently called me. And it's been about six or seven years since I've talked to her physically, but I've been paying very close attention to what's going on with her. Uh, and she reached out and she, she calls me P hard, Pastor Hardy. She says, uh, is this still your number? I said, yeah. And we got to talking and, and, and I told her, I said, I've always told you that my, my door will always be open for you. And she started laughing and she goes, I know that's why I'm calling you. Seven years between the time that I last was with her and when she reached back out to me. And I, that's just proof to me that your work is not finished nor ended. And, you know, when you become exhausted and or feel that it's in vain, understand this, that the Lord will decide when your time is done. And until that time is done, you know, get back in the pulpit, put your collar on and go to work and stop complaining about it. Because I think that's the world wants us to be that way. The world wants us to complain when things aren't going our way. But the church says God is faithful and just. It's never in vain. And even for retired, I mean, even for veteran and, and pastors near retirement, your work's not completed. Because even when you retire, as you well know, pastors don't retire. They just go somewhere else to work. It's all that happens. That's absolutely true. They don't true. retire. They just retire from the they, parish you really, they... and they go somewhere else to work. <laughs> That you find them working in different ways, but their ministry, as you said, is definitely not over. Dr. Hardy, thanks so much for joining us today to chat about your new book, Pastoral Leadership, Shepherding and Caring for God's People. For our listeners and viewers, we'll have a link to the book in the show notes where you can learn more and you can purchase your copy. And thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you being with us, and we'll see you next time. Before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank our friends at Lutheran Haven for their support of this episode of the CPH Podcast. Celebrating their 75th anniversary this year, Lutheran Haven is a full-service retirement community located in Novato, Florida, where residents enjoy retirement with like-minded individuals in a close-knit community where neighbors become the best of friends. Visit lutheranhaven.org to learn more. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Concordia Publishing House podcast. I pray that this time was valuable to your walk with Christ. We'd love to connect with listeners on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Concordia Pub. Visit cph.org for more resources to grow deeper in the gospel.